Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening is the president of Catholic Answers. He writes and lectures on the lives of Catholic heroes and villains and has addressed audiences across the U.S. and in Europe. Christopher Check served for seven years as a field artillery officer in the Marine Corps, after which he served for 19 years as vice president of the Rock, Rockford Institute. In 2012, he joined Catholic Answers as director of development and was named president in 2015. Uh, and just as an aside, Chris has been a longtime friend of the Institute for over 10 years now. So it's always a joy to have him with us. Please join me in welcoming Chris Ruchek. Thank you, Andy. All right, the following story comes to us from St. Basil. Forty legionaries are serving on the Armenian frontier, and they refuse an imperial edict to burn incense before idols of the ancient Roman gods. These men are Christians. The Augustus in the West, a man named Constantine, has recently declared their religion legal, but his authority does not command the whole of the Roman Empire. His counterpart in the East, a man named Licinius, re is resentful of Constantine's growing power and of Constantine's growing enthusiasm for Christianity. And he has undertaken one last persecution. He's ignoring the lessons learned by emperors, governors, and prefects of Rome's past three centuries that persecution, in fact, has only increased the resolve and numbers of this troublesome sect. He's ignoring the words of Tertullian, penned a century before, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the faith. The 40 soldiers appear before the local magistrate. He tries persuasion. He warns them of the disgrace that will befall them should they refuse to offer sacrifice before the pagan gods. He promises promotion to any of them that will. And yet to the man they are adamant, and no threat or bribe will, in, will induce them to forsake Jesus Christ. So with one long chain, they're bound together, and they're locked in a small cell to await their sentence. And during their imprisonment, one of their number, a man named Melatios, writes a testament on behalf of his brothers in arms. Each soldier is given his say. The young men, not long out of boyhood, send regards and farewell to their parents. One sends his prayers to his betrothed, another to his wife and their firstborn baby, still an infant. In their testament, they exhort their fellow Christians to lay aside the passing things of this world and fix their hearts on the glories of heaven. Knowing they are to be martyred, they urge their fellow Christians not to quarrel over their relics. After weeks in jail, they are sentenced. They are to be stripped of their clothes, 
marched to the middle of a frozen lake and exposed to the cold and wind of the Armenian winter until they are dead. Around the lake, the local governor has set up guards and fires and warm baths to tempt the martyrs to lapse. However, an insurmountable barrier stands between them and the shore, the unseen Christ, whom they would have to deny the, to grasp the life that is leaving their bodies moment by moment. The young soldiers pray that none of them will fail and that all 40 will gain the crown of martyrdom. After hours and hours in the dark and bitter cold, the martyrs grow weak. The faith of one of them falters. He crawls to the bank. Roman guards lift him and plunge him in a bath. But after enduring hours of so much exposure, the shock of the hot water takes his life. One Roman guard, inspired by the faith of the remaining 39, declares in a loud voice that he himself is a Christian. He tears off his clothes and runs out onto the ice. And the martyr's number is restored to 40. And they praise God with their dying voices. By the following morning, they're all dead, save the youngest, Meliton. His mother rushes onto the ice to embrace her son. He dies in her arms. This inspiring ordeal of the 40 martyrs of Sebastia, the feast is coming up, is the last snap of the dragon's tail. Constantine has declared Christianity legal in the West, and within three years, Constantine's rival Licinius will fall to forces on either side of him. Goths from the north pouring across the Danube River, and the armies of Constantine marching east. In his life of Constantine, Eusebius describes the war between the rival Augusti as a conflict in salvation history. Constantine, the champion of Christianity. Licinius, the last defender of the pagan gods. Before Constantine's army is carried, the laborum, his purple standing, be standard bearing the key row, the first two letters of the name of Christ. In contrast, the army of Licinius is led by the victimari, magicians, sorcerers, fortune tellers, whose secret rites implore the favor of the pagan gods. Now, whether or not Constantine understood this conflict in these terms, right, that Eusebius describes, scholars to this day debate. But what is true is that once Licinius is defeated and exiled, Constantine now rules the whole of the Roman Empire, east and west, and no man challenges his authority. So it's Constantine who last brings freedom to the early Christian church. But it's important for Christians to understand today that his edicts and his actions, Constantine's edicts and actions, were not created out of whole cloth. In other words, Constantine's extensions of the legal of legal protection to Christianity and to Christians that permitted them the freedom to worship God the one true God and Constantine's eventual declaration of Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire these things didn't just happen 
they, they were not without precedent. And this is one of the points that I want you to try to go home with tonight. The foundation of the events that lead to the transformation of the Roman Empire in Jesus Christ were laid and built upon by Roman emperors long before Constantine, right? It, it sounds strange, but even as Christians were suffering persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire, the Roman legal and political worlds was becoming the fertile soil in which the Holy Catholic Church would grow into her place of primacy, right? So let's see if we can make some sense of that historical fact. Christians, Catholics included, tend to think of the age of the martyrs as 300 years of persecution and torture by Roman brutes suddenly reversed by Constantine's edict, right? This is a caricature. The story of the actual relationship between the Roman Empire and the Christians during the first three centuries is more complex, it's more nuanced, and it's more interesting. And I apologize, we'll have to get into the weeds of that. And because the center of the church is located in Rome, the eternal city, Catholics need to understand this convergence between the Roman Empire and the Christian church, right? The average layman is still convinced that Christians were wanted outlaws in constant conflict with a state apparatus intent on wiping them out. They were like a kind of subversive or underground organization, right? But my friends, even the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not an expression of Roman policy, right? It was a miscarriage of Roman justice. The Romans took pains not to interfere with the religions of the various peoples of the empire. The crucifixion was not an expression, it was rather a miscarriage of Roman justice. And the stoning of St. Stephen, right, proto-martyr, is an event that we really best could describe as an occasional act of brutal popular justice, which was unauthorized, but which the Roman authorities could not always prevent. I recommend to you a book by Marta Sordi. I'll get it up on the Christians in the Roman Empire. I'll get it up on the handout tomorrow. The very early years of the church, this is a fact, the very early years of the church, Christians in Palestine enjoyed the protection of the Roman Empire, of Roman law, and central to Roman law, two realities. I already mentioned one. The tendency of the Roman authorities not to interfere in the disputes among religions of the many religions of the empire, right? And the second, very important, Roman government reserved to itself the authority to declare a capital sentence, right? So capital punishment is reserved to the Roman government. So Tertullian and Justin Martyr both describe correspondence between Pontius Pilate and the emperor in Rome whose name was Tiberius. Pilate 
In fact, in Tertullian, Tertullian describes Pilate as already Christian in his conscience, right? The Latin is Pilatus est ipse iam pro sua conscientia Christianus. That's Tertullian's view. He reports the emperor, according to Tertullian, Pilate reports spread of the belief in the divinity of Jesus Christ and the reaction of the intransigent Sanhedrin with a growing number of illegal trials and executions, right? So after the execution of, uh, of Jesus Christ, Pilate is reporting back to Tiberius and saying, the effect of this has been that now the Sanhedrin, right, are uh, having their own illegal trials and executions, right? Not the Romans. It's reasonable to believe that Tiberius, the emperor, ha who had a reputation uh, for peace through diplomacy, uh, in Tacitus, the Latin is conciliis et astu, diplomacy and astuteness. So Tiberius would have, at least for practical reasons, been sympathetic to a new religion that confined to Judea, Christianity, confined to Judea, preached brotherhood, encouraged moral behavior, in contradistinction to the Jewish religion, which had an anti-Roman messianic political culture, right? So Tiberius would have, according to Tacitus, Tiberius would have had a preference for the Christians who were just nice, peaceful people who encouraged, you know, brotherly behavior and moral behavior in contrast to the Jews whose political culture was anti-Roman. Tertullian tells the story that Tiberius reads Pilate's report and he's so taken with the peaceful nature of the Christians that he proposes to the Roman Senate that Jesus Christ be declared a god. In other words, added to the Roman pantheon, right? And that Christianity receives state recognition uh, as, as a legal religion, in, of which there were many in the Roman Empire, okay? Now... The Senate, maybe because they saw Christianity as a Jewish sect, maybe because Tiberius at this point in his reign is an unpopular figure, they reject his proposal and they fire back. And they say Christianity is a superstitio illicita, an illegal cult. Tiberius undercuts the Senate with a veto on any future accusations brought against Christians. So the aim of this veto must have been to fulfill his desire to free the Christians from the oppression of the Sanhedrin, okay? Now, do we know that this story is certain, right, of Tiberius's battle with the Senate over the legality of Christianity? We, we don't. But it's important to note there's no other account in history of Christianity being declared illegal. This is the only version of how it came to be declared illegal, right? This action of the Senate. Tiberius's next move is to send his envoy, a man named Vitellius, to Judea. Among the probable reasons for Vitellius's embassy was to depose Caiaphas, the high priest of the Jews, for the crime of illegally executing St. Stephen. Chapter 9, 
Acts of the Apostles. Thereafter, the church had peace throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Now, why are these three regions important? Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Why are these th three regions significant to our understanding of the early relationship between the church and Rome? Because these regions were the three regions under Roman rule. And for the next three decades, Christians in Judea and then in Rome enjoyed the protection of Tiberius's veto. There are two exceptions in Judea that seem to prove the rule. The first one is the period from 41 to 44 AD, when the Romans briefly surrendered rule of the province of Judea to the local king, Herod Agrippa, right? It is during this period that we see the martyrdom of St. James the Great, right? The first apostle for, to die for Christ, beheaded along with his accuser, right? Uh, who, according to St. Clement of Alexandria, was moved by St. James's courage at his trial, repented of his accusation, declared himself a Christian. Herod Agrippa, chapter 12 of the Acts of the Apostles reports, seeing the execution of St. James pleased the Jews, See that this execution pleased the Jews, arrested and imprisoned St. Peter. Second, a similar absence of Roman rule in 62 AD witnessed the martyrdom of St. James the Less, first bishop of Jerusalem, along with other Christians. How was St. James martyred? Thrown from the roof of the temple, then stoned, and then clubbed to death, right? Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, reports that the chief priest, Ananias, and the Sanhedrin were taking advantage of the temporary vacancy in the Roman governor's seat caused by the death of Portius Festus and then the delayed arrival of his successor, Albinus. Agrippa II dismissed Ananias from his post for what was a clear abuse of power. If in the year 62 AD the chief priests of the Sanhedrin took the absence of the Roman governor as an auspicious moment for proceeding against Christ's followers, this must mean that in the preceding years the Romans had made it clear that they had no intention of ever giving way again to the pressure of Jewish authorities as they had done at the time of the trial of Christ. Marta Sorti. The treatment of St. Paul when he's brought to the local synagogue in Corinth before the Roman proconsul, right, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, and when he's twice brought before the Roman prosecutor in Judea by the Jewish authorities, Acts 21, 23, and 25, is the same. The Romans refuse to intervene in a religious quarrel between Christians and Jews. So it's in this atmosphere of something like tolerance and benevolence that Sergius Paulus, a Roman proconsul from Cyprus, is moved by the preaching of Paul and Barnabas, right? Acts chapter 13, and what it, what it, what's recorded there in Acts of the Apostles? That Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul, learned to believe. He becomes a close friend of St. Paul, and his whole family converts, okay? G.K. Chesterton observed that the Son of God, or excuse me, that God chose the incarnation of his Son for the moment of the incarnation of his Son, this moment in human history where the world was largely at peace, right? The baby killers in Carthage had to be vanquished. We've talked about this when we talk about the Punic Wars 
to make the world safe for the divine baby, right? This is the Pax Romana. And it's a consequence of Roman policy and culture that was more tolerant than tyrannical. The Romans were pagans. They didn't enjoy the benefit of revelation in the way that the Jews did. But in a real sense, they cooperate with the incarnation, right? In fact, the real reason for Augustus's census, you know, is the incarnation. Christopher Dawson notes it's Greece that gives Europe all that is distinctly Western, but that it requires the world of Roman political order and legal order to extend this tradition of higher civilization to Western Europe, right? So my only point here, folks, and I don't mean to belabor it, initially, the Romans cooperated with the prosperity of the early church. So the question is, when do things turn dark? Because they do, right? Things turn dark during the reign of Nero. Very good, good, okay. Although not right away. After all, it's in, it's in Nero's reign that St. Paul is acquitted, right, at his first trial. And he continues to preach the gospel in the Praetorium, right? The guards of the Romans, okay, uh, of the emperor. Philippians chapter 1. And this time, this is all the military imagery right there in chapter 6, right? He even preaches in the emperor's household. There's a contemporary trial that further illustrates an atmosphere of toleration despite the senatorial decree of Tiberius' reign. A Christian woman of the senatorial class, her name is Poponia Gracchina, a convert to Christianity, was declared innocent in a public trial conducted by her own husband, a military hero and formal proconsul. The source of the story is, is not a Christian apologist. It's the pagan historian Tacitus. A member of this family uh, is buried at San Callistus on the Appian Way, right? Other families of the aristocratic and senatorial class become Christian. So what happens? Well, if Nero's probable excuse for his persecution of Christians, right, the great fire in 64, and his probable responsibility, you know, are subject to debate today, what is certain is his wickedness. Nero was a wicked man, right? Uh, of, of awful uh, sexual appetites, uh, his self-indulgence, he wanted very much to be worshipped. But whether or not he started the fire, the rumor wouldn't go away. And so Nero needed a scapegoat, and it turned out to be the Christians. And the Christians made an e easy scapegoat because they were not universally liked in Rome. Some viewed them as a Jewish sect, and Jews in the Roman Empire were not particularly well-loved. So recall at this time... Judea is about to erupt into a full-scale rebellion. So Jews in Rome are not particularly well-liked, all right? And the Jewish religion is officially protected. Jews didn't have to serve in the army uh, because military service would conflict with the Sabbath. Christians didn't enjoy any kind of exemption like this. They were resented for their strict moral codes. Tacitus accuses Christians of hatred of the human race. But in chapter 4 of the epistle, of his epistle, first epistle, St. Peter describes the slander of Christians by pagans for their unwillingness to participate in lawless disorders, right? The rivals and enemies of the Christians, including Jews in Rome, for who, from whom the, uh, uh, were, we know from the final chapter of Acts, the apostles kept their distance. They spread wild stories of their 
criminal activity. And what were these things? Human sacrifice, infanticide, cannibalism, accusations of incest, right? A deliberate twisting of the Christian practice of referring to one another as brother and sister. The Roman historian Lanctatius doesn't make any mention of the fire, but he does uh, blame the persecutions on the vast number of defections from the worship of idols in Rome. In other words, he saw the problem of Christians as religious, not political. The precise sequence of events isn't exactly clear. It's possible that the fire accelerated persecutions that were already underway. Nero's first two mo and most famous martyrs, or two most famous martyrs, uh, St. Peter and Paul, seem to have been martyred one the former before the fire and one after it the storm does break loose and the account is in the roman historian tacitus we don't need to belabor it he writes no human effort no princely largesse no offering to the gods could make that infamous rumor disappear disappear that nero had started the fire so in order to abolish the rumor he acu falsely accused and, and executed with the most ex pu exquisite punishments those people called christians so even tacitus doesn't believe that the christians were responsible for the fire but he blames this all on the ego of one man nero so some relief comes for the christians with the assassination of nero but the underlying legal problem didn't go away. Why? Because remember, we had Tiberius's veto by precedence. You could be killed simply for being a, Christ, a Christian by the work of Nero. So Tiberius's veto really no longer holds the political authority that it once did. So now Christians could be brought to trial simply for the fact of their religion alone. But it would actually be a long time before they would be the two leaders of the Flavian dynasty, Vespasian and his son Titus, they rejected emperor worship, right? And they even tolerated a growing number of Christians, including Christians in their own households. Vespasian's brother, Flavius Sabinus, was a Christian. Vespasian had come to know Christianity in Palestine, uh, where his own investigation included that the Christian descendants of the house of David were not a political threat to the empire. Vespasian's younger son, Domitian, so around 81, we're kind of a third of the way through here, uh, revived the idea of the emperor as a god. He reignites the persecution of Christians, including his own cousin. So you see, Christianity is in the royal households at this time. Flavius Clemens, a consul. Domitian, in fact, was the first emperor to deify himself while he was still alive, all right? And probable that the book of the apocalypse was written during the reign of Domitian, right? The woman drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When Domitian was assassinated, we have a long period from Nerva to Marcus Aurelius, right? There's that great equestrian statue of him on the Capitoline Hill. So a period from 96 to 161, more than half a century, where while they enforced the laws against Christianity, there were not any real genuine persecutions of Christians. It's the reign of Decius. Uh, until the reign of Decius, persecutions are sporadic. And they're mostly confined to the outskirts, to the provinces. 
It's in this period, and we've got to dwell on this. This is important. It's in this period that we find one of the most important primary source documents that tells us of this age and describes this relationship between the church and the Roman Empire. And, and, okay? and what's it called? Anybody here who's taken Latin has to have read this. It's called Trajan's Rescript. By the way, this, this, this legal model still exists in the Catholic Church today. So bear with me. We have to go into some details here. The Emperor Trajan rules from 98 to 117. He's a great soldier. He's a very hardworking public servant. Unrest breaks out in the province of Bithynia. It's in northwestern Asia Minor. He sends one of his most trusted advisors, a chap known as Pliny the Younger. He goes to solve the problem. Pliny wrote to the emperor to advice, for advice on how do I handle Trajan, how do I handle the question of the Christians. The sentence for being found guilty of Christianity is death, but the enforcement doesn't seem to be very strict. The correspondence results in this extremely important document. It's called Trajan's Rescript. Pliny writes to Trajan. He says, the Christians are growing in number, for that matter, it seems to me to warrant to write you, especially because there are so many of them. For many persons of every age, every rank, so people of social status, people of social status as well, and also both sexes are involved. Uh, this superstition has spread not just to the cities, but it's in the villages and the farms as well. Because so many are becoming Christians, an economic problem has arisen. And what is this economic problem? The temples, the pagan temples, are doing bad business because people aren't coming there anymore to sacrifice, you know, animals, right? So the people who sell the animals for sacrifice and the sorcerers or the uh, pagan priests who sacrifice them are losing business because of the growth of Christianity. Pliny wants to observe the law. He's a Roman. He wants to observe the law. So he says, Trajan, what do I do? He's never participated in a trial of Christians. He doesn't know what offense it's the practice to punish or to investigate. Is age a factor, he asked. Should pardon be granted if the person repents? Whether the name itself, he asks, that is Christian, even without the offenses, or just the offenses associated with the name are to be punished. He outlines the procedure he's been following when accusations are brought before him. He interrogates the accused, and if he or she confesses, he repeats the question several times in hopes of gaining repentance. The stubborn are executed. The Roman citizens were transferred to Rome. Remember St. Paul, as Paul had been decades prior. Pliny doesn't find any evidence of actual wrongdoing. Okay, He describes the Christians. They were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing together a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, not to commit fraud or theft or adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. 
Even after this, they affirmed they had ceased to, after my edict, by which in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden secret societies. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but extravagant superstition. So one of the problems that Pliny has to deal with is anonymous denunciations. This is not a Roman practice. He asks Trajan, who tells him in Trajan's rescript, you observe proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who have been denounced to you as Christians. For it's not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. Conquirendi non sunt. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation. Whoever denies he is a Christian really proves it by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. But anonymously posted accusations have no place in prosecution, for this is a dangerous kind of precedence and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. So, from the Roman perspective, the practice of Christianity carries a death penalty, but the accused were given every opportunity to repudiate. Moreover, no effort was made to seek them out. More, more particularly, anonymous accusations, which were abhorrent to the Romans, could not lead to an arrest. So, viewed from the Roman perspective, I'm not <laughs> making an apology here, but viewed from the Roman perspective, there's a lot to admire in Trajan's rescript. He doesn't want to tell Pliny to ignore a Roman law that goes all the way back to the time of Tiberius. On the other hand, he recognized that someone's religion is not really sufficient grounds to put him to death. So he gives Pliny as much leeway as he can to avoid executions. This period is called the Age of the Antonines, and it's mixed, as you might expect, for Christians. On the one hand, a Christian could always be ratted out by an informer with a bad motive. On the other hand, informers were not really very highly thought of in Roman society. And moreover, they ran the risk of bringing down the full weight of Roman justice if their accusation went unproved. So the level of persecution varied by region. In an area with a large Christian population like Bithynia, only a fool would openly denounce his neighbor. So Christians who laid low could enjoy comparative security if they followed St. Paul's injunction not to deliberately seek martyrdom. In Lyon, for example, however, under the Antonines, matters were much worse, far worse. There's correspondence between Marcus Aurelius, Lyon, southern France, between Marcus Aurelius and the Roman officials in Lyon, similar to that between Trajan and Pliny. In Lyon, however, where the Christian population comprised immigrants from Asia Minor, they were despised by the local Gallic population. So there's an element here of kind of ethnic tension as well. You've all read the account of the Lyon martyrs. If you haven't, it, you can see it in Eusebius. He describes, describes it in great detail. You know, Blessed Blandina is the most famous of them. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're stretched in the, in, the, in the stocks, hot plates of brass, 
pressed against the most delicate parts of the body, exposure to wild beasts, roasting in a chair uh, over a fire. Blessed Blandina is put in a net and she's um, tossed in front of a bull. Uh, but you know, because of her hope and firm hold, uh, she remains and in, in, in communion with Christ and she inspires her fellow Christians. Sporadic persecution continues throughout the age of the Antonines, comes to an end with the assassination of Commodus, right? If you've seen Gladiator, he's the crazed emperor, somewhat accurately portrayed in that film. It does take some liberties as well. The depraved adopted son of Marcus Aurelius. One of the effects of, of, of Commodus's cruel policies against his political rivals was the diversion of tension from Christians. There are even Christians in the court of Commodus. His concubine, Marcia, who later conspired in his murder, was sympathetic to Christians. She intervenes and sets free Christians from the mines in Sardinia. Commodus's successor, we're in the early 200s now, we're closing in on 300, were generally tolerant. Septimius Severus was generally tolerant in keeping with Trajan's rescript. He didn't seek to check the growth of Christianity by making conversion to Christianity a crime. There are some convert martyrs during this period. They are mentioned in the canon of the mass, Perpetua and Felicity of Carthage. For decades, beginning with the reign of Caracalla, the Christians enjoyed peace. There was even a Christian emperor in this period. This is somewhat debated, but it seems to be true. Anybody know his name? Philip the Arab. He's been regarded as one of the empire's worst emperors. But this opinion is probably the result of anti-Christian propaganda that followed than an honest account of his administration. In fact, the administration of Philip the Arab lasted for five years. This was a very long time during this period that's called the third century crisis that lasts from about 250 to 300. He's murdered by Decius, who reigns 249 to 251, and Decius probably killed his reputation, Philip's reputation as well. So we're now in this age of crisis when I think there are something like 25 emperors and you know 24 of them are murdered. So yeah, this is why we call it crisis, right? It's marked by barbarian invasions, struggles for the imperial throne, Decius feels that the growth of Christianity is angering the gods. So he attempts to unite the empire against the church. And he issues an edict requiring Christians to offer sacrifice to the pagan gods, right? And so there are persecutions during this time as well. Two decades later, Aurelian, who was also a great soldier, the wall around Rome that stands now is named for Emperor Aurelian, the Aurelian Wall. He wished to unite the empire to the cult of Sol Invictus, the unconquered son. He was willing to tolerate the Christian church, and on one occasion in Antioch, he intervened in a dispute over ownership of a church building, ruling in favor of the Christians, who were in union with the Bishop of Rome. Though the worst was yet to come under Diocletian, you can see how slowly we're kind of making this way for peaceful coexistence. 
The final bloodiest and best document of the persecutions comes under Diocletian 284 to 305 at the very beginning of the fourth century. This emperor for whom the persecution is remembered was not at first the instigator. And most of Diocletian's reign, Christians enjoyed peace and prosperity. I always say that Diocletian kind of gets a bad rap because he killed a lot of Christians. And he, he, I mean, he did. But he actually was a very good man. And, and what did Diocletian do um, near, near the end of his reign? He abrogates and he goes to his farm in Serbia to grow cabbages. I mean, honestly, if we could get more politicians to emulate Diocletian in, in this regard, right? But, but in any case, it's Diocletian's, I'm sorry to divert here for a second, it's Diocletian who creates what's called the Tetrarchy. It's kind of important to our story because it explains why we have Constantine and Licinius, why we have a kind of a divided empire. It's Diocletian who realizes the empire is too large for one man to rule, and so he creates the Tetrarchy, divides the rule of the Roman Empire between two Augusti, or Augustuses, and one in the east and one in the west, and they're Caesars. So you have two Augustuses and two Caesars, you know, like they're executive officers, if you will. And this actually restores a kind of rule and order to an empire that had been in crisis, as we said, for uh, almost 50 years. So he moves the imperial capital from Rome to Nicomedia near the Bosporus uh, because he said the emperor needs to be closer to the frontier. Building and public works are restored throughout the empire. He brings inflation under control. Diocletian even issues an edict defending marriage. Right? That would be good to see from a politician. He said that chastity would bring down the favor of the gods. Hmm? We might try that here. It, yeah. At the end of his reign, the old emperor abrogated and went to, uh, abdicated, excuse me, and went to grow cabbages. So there were Christians in Diocletian's household. His wife Prisca and his daughter Valeria were catechumens. This is according to Lactantius. Uh, officers of his court, uh, Gorgonius and Peter, were openly Christian. What is more, Diocletian had appointed Christians as governors of various provinces. Diocletian Caesar, however, Galerius, remember this name. He's a lesser soldier and a man of lesser character altogether. But he was a very skilled self-promoter. He's a violent and very large man. He rose from shepherd to Caesar in the east and eventually Augustus following Diocletian's abdication. Today we would say he knew how to climb the corporate ladder, right? He even knew when to grovel. After leading a disastrous campaign against the Persians, he abased himself before Diocletian, gets a second chance. He has, he, he has a swift victory over the Persians and subsequent expansion of the empire's eastern border. Greater than ever, this endears him to Diocletian. Diocletian gives Galerius his daughter in marriage. Valeria was a catechumen, however. So here's, it's a family quarrel that starts these final persecutions, okay? Valeria's a catechumen. Galerius's mother was a pagan priestess, priestess, and she, she's the Lady Macbeth in the story. She influences her son. She and other diviners, oracles, and soothsayers, their business is, as in Trajan's day, they're losing their business. As Christianity grows, 
Galerius also takes to heart the work of pagan pamphleteers who write about the threat to the empire caused by Christianity. In addition, Galerius viewed Christians serving in the army as a threat to unit cohesion. All right? There might even kind of be an argument there, although I don't know if he actually had the data for that. But you could see how somebody could think that. You know, you, you worship this God, I worship this God. How are we going to get along in battle? Right? Many Christian soldiers lose their lives, in fact, during the persecutions that are come, right? Uh, the two, two, two famous ones, George and, and Sebastian and Alexander of Bergamo. At first, Diocletian is reluctant to open the persecutions. He's not so much sympathetic to Christians, but he's a practical political man, right? And, he, and, and Christians are, are everywhere in the Roman Empire at this point and in positions of authority. So this could be political suicide. But Galerius prevails on the old man, and the persecutions are unleashed. There's an edict ordering the tearing down of churches, the destruction of sacred scripture. It commanded that those who were in honorable stations should be degraded. So if you held office in the Roman Empire, and you were a Christian, you were to be degraded. And then three edicts follow. The imprisonment of bishops and priests, the torture of bishops and clergy, and finally the torture and imprisonment of the lady. This is the worst and the most widespread of the persecutions. It's fierce, and it is empire-wide. In Eusebius, we read about martyrs being strung between two young trees, and then they snap apart, ripping, ripping the body apart. And this is when the 40 martyrs of, that we began with, uh, the story that began with, takes place. And, but the triumph of Constantine in hoc signo vinces under the sign you will conquer brings the pers persecution to a close, right, save a brief period under uh, Julian the Apostate. John and Paul, John and Paul, Cosmos Damian, John and Paul are Roman soldiers who are martyred during the persecutions of Julian the Apostate. Okay, a few points of review before we conclude. So, the relationship between the church and the Roman Empire of the first three centuries is not one of outlaws perpetually hounded by the Roman thug state. There's no data to suggest that the Romans ever thought that the Christians were a political threat. From time to time, throughout the empire, depending on the temperament of the officials and the moods of the people, the Roman state found itself in a position that it really didn't want to be in, disputing or managing disputes between Roman paganism and Christianity. But for the most part, tried to stick to the law and social order. Most persecutions were local. So they'd be hot in a certain space. Lyon, for example, or North Africa, or Egypt. You know, uh, Under Valerian and Diocletian, and in the case of Diocletian's persecution, Constantius, the Augustus in the West, and father of Constantine, even under Diocletian, these men did, did not participate. So Britain, Gaul, Spain, we don't see a lot of record of, of martyrdom in these, in these regions, largely at peace. With the exception of the persecutions under Nero, right, and Domitian probably, uh, the really horrible and large-scale persecutions don't take place in the city of Rome. That whole business of the, of the Colosseum, or more correctly, the Flavian Amphitheater, lions being thrown before Christians, certainly in the Circus of Nero, certainly in the Circus of Domitian, probably not 
in the Colosseum? Probably not. There's not a lot of evidence for it. All right. The, uh, the, the great I refer you to the great archaeological historian Rodolfo Lonciani. He said, you know, the Romans, the citizens of Rome, were really just kind of too civilized for this. So this comic book version of three centuries of Roman thuggery may derive from a kind of anti-classical, anti-Catholic, so, or Protestant, quarters, seeking to separate the church from the eternal city. We can't do this. The, chur the church is linked to Rome, historically, liturgically, spiritually, traditionally, and metaphysically. Concerning our own relationship to the martyrs, a couple of reflections. The church has made for two millennia much of the study of, of, of the emulation of lives of saints, even if in, in recent times we don't give this sufficient emphasis, right? So what lessons can we take to heart? Well, one is we can be inspired and comforted, rather, by the story of the lapsi, L-A-P-S-I, those who denied Christ rather than face martyrdom, but were welcomed back into the fold after they had repented, right? There was a big theological argument. Could these, could these people's sins, in fact, ever be forgiven, right? For, from the beginning, the church fulfills her role as a mother, ever ready to dispense understanding and forgiveness, right? The privations and tortures endured by the martyrs are good for us to reflect on when we are faced with the inconveniences of everyday life, you know, the next time our plane is late. John Paul, Pope St. John Paul, in very tight of splendor, although martyrdom represents the high point of the witness to moral truth and one to which relatively few people are called, there is nonetheless a consistent witness which all Christians must daily be ready to make even at the cost of suffering and great sacrifice, right? Or Gregory the Great, one can actually love the difficulties of this world for the sake of eternal rewards, a kind of daily martyrdom. Moreover, there's a kind of refreshing moral clarity in the acts of the martyrs. Martyr means witness. They're witnesses to this moral clarity. Again, John Paul and Veritas Splendor. By their eloquent and attractive example of a life completely transfigured by the splendor of moral truth, the martyrs light up every period of history by reawakening its moral sense. Finally, it's useful for us to reflect on the fact that the early martyrs were not martyrs to the cause of religious freedom or religious liberty. Eyes that, uh, ideas, at least as we understand them in the modern world, didn't really have any meaning for the ancients, okay? They were martyrs to the first commandment. In an empire with all manner of pagan deities and syncretist philosophies reconciling so many gods and systems, all to the satisfaction of most of the citizens, Christianity insisted on what? It's exceptional nature, proclaiming one God and three persons before whom there were no others. So no early Christian martyr said to his fellow citizens, you call him Saul Invictus, Invictus or Jupiter Imperator, I call him Jesus Christ, but we pretty much, you know, worship the same God. Too many Christians today behave as if a few insignificant semantic and doctrinal differences shouldn't stand in the way, for example, of sharing with Muslims the same worship as they space as they do, for example, at the Chicago O'Hare Airport. To say nothing of permitting Islamic mosques and schools to flourish here in the West, right? We've sort of elevated tolerance to a dogma, right? 
religious tolerance as a practical sort has political value as the, as the Roman officials understood. But the modern sense of tolerance is one that really was spread by cannon and sword after the Renaissance and into the French Revolution. And if we don't see this distinction, we're not in a position to judge, for example, things like the Spanish Inquisition, much less to defend our faith. But a time is approaching when we may well be called to circuses, the horror of which rivals that of Nero's or Domitian's, or exceeds it. The difference is I don't expect any relief you know, from the periodic influence of, of, of Roman authority. All right, Can, do we have time for a story to finish with? So, uh, so this is one for all the altar boys and, and former altar boys. St. Tarsisius. During the reign of the Emperor Valerian, St. Tarsisius, patron of altar boys, during, during his reign, the Emperor Valerian ordered the execution of priests and bishops and deacons. Christians were forced to attend mass in secret places, such as in people's basements or in the catacombs outside city walls. Sometimes deacons would carry the blessed sacrament to Christians who could not attend mass because getting mass was too, too dangerous to get to mass. Other times Christians would be within the city, right, in, in jail, awaiting execution. So on one such occasion, because of the persecution, there were no deacons available to take communion to the faithful in the prisons. And so there was a priest and he did not know what to do. His altar boy, young Roman Christian boy of maybe 11 or 12 years old named Tarsisius, steps forward after mass and said he would carry communion to these Christians who were waiting inside the city walls in prison. The priest admired Tarsisius for his fortitude, tried to talk him out of it, Tarsisius insisted, and he gives him, the priest gives him the sacred host, carefully wrapped in a silk. He gives him a quick blessing, sends him out into the streets of Rome. All's going well until Tarsisius gets inside the walls, and there he runs into some pagan boys, his own age, who know him. And they say, come on, Tarsisius, we're having a game of such and such, uh, join us. Tarsisius thanks them very kindly. He explains to them he has an errand to run and needs to be along his way, but he'd be happy to come and play with them as soon as he's done. Oh, Christian boy, one of the pagan boys says with a bit of a sneer. Is it that you think you are too good to play with us? And they start to form a circle around Tarsisius. It's not that at all, said Tarsisius. I have something to deliver. I have to be on my way. Well, show us what it is. What's the big secret, Christian boy? It is no business of yours, said Tarsisius, looking each of the boys in the eye. Now step aside and make way. Far from stepping aside, the pagan boys begin to close their circle around Tarsisius, and as they did, they picked up heavy sticks and rocks from the ground, and one of them shouted, I bet he's carrying the Christian mysteries, which is how early Christians referred to the Blessed Sacrament. Are you Christian boy? Show us. Tarsisius is clutching his precious cargo to his chest. He makes a dash for what looks like an opening in the circle, but he's not quick enough. The mob of boys close around him and they begin to beat him with stones and heavy sticks. 
Tarsisius does not cry out, but quietly prays, ever clutching the Blessed Sacrament to his chest. The pagan boys beat him to death. With bloodied hands, they seize the bruised and broken body of Tarsisius, and they try to twist the silk cloth carrying the Holy Eucharist out of his dead arms. But although he had no life left in him, Tarsisius would not let go of our Lord. The boys tried for hours to pry open his arms, but they failed and failed again. So they left Tarsisius' body by the side of the road, thinking the vultures would eat it. After a time, some Christian men and women sent by the priest come looking for Tarsisius, and when they found his broken and bloody corpse still clinging to the Blessed Sacrament, they guessed what had happened. They carefully lifted the small boy's body, and they gently bore it back to the priest, who by now was deeply concerned about his young altar boy. The Christians set the boy's body at the foot of the priest who knelt down, quietly brushed the boy's hair matted with blood away from his face with his thumb, made the sign of the cross on Tarsisius' forehead. At that moment, Tarsisius' arms unfolded and released the blessed sacrament to the priest. And all who witnessed this knew that here was a holy Christian boy who had held Jesus in his arms and who now was being held forever in heaven in the arms of Jesus. Thank you very much. All right. Please raise your hand and I'll come over to you. Hi. So my first um, interaction with the martyrs was from the novel Fabiola. Right. That's where the story of, um, uh, that's where I stole the story of Tarsisius from. Oh, well, it was beautiful. Thank yeah. you. Um, so I was Colonel Spellman, right? Was it sp that's correct. Right, right. Yes. I so, recommend it to all of you. Okay. So that's, you think that's one's factually correct? I, was, that's I think I was it's, about. I think it's true. Okay. Do you follow my distinction there? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Like the parable. I mean, Tarsisius is a, there's a, there's a little side chapel to him at uh, St. Lawrence outside the walls where Pius IX is buried. But I mean, like so many of the stories of the martyrs, they are brought to us by, uh, you know, oral tradition and some we have better evidence for than others, but I believe all of them. You know, why not? But I mean, they're skeptics and that's fine too, I guess. Thank you. So my second question is, so there's only, I mean, the persecutions were more personal than universal. So do we have any percentages of what the Christians were to the other convicts or to the population in general? That's an excellent question, and I don't know the answer to it. So Marta Sordi, S-O-R-D-I, she's a scholar of Italian nationality, an ancient historian. Her book, Christians of the Roman Empire, you can get a, a, a translation from University of Oklahoma Press. And then the other one on this period that I would recommend to you, uh, Monsignor Ricciotti, R-I-C-I-O-T-T-I, -I -T -T -I, Age of the Martyrs. And I'll, I'll make sure we get both of those up, up there on the website. But there may be data in either one of those on the growth of Christianity from uh, this little backwater to, uh, to the whole of the, of the Roman Empire. All right, we've got a couple of questions coming in online. Uh, what is the problem with Christians paying lip service to the state while only secretly holding the true faith? For example, I'm personally against abortion, but I wouldn't oppose on anyone else. If you could comment on that, Chris. Well, 
a, a lie takes place first in, in the interior life. So, in fact, there's a pope from, from the 1680s. I forget who it is, but I know it's 1680s because uh, the Siege of Vienna takes place in 1683. If you're Polish, you should be celebrating this. Every September 12th, John Sobieski, right, coming down the, the hills and rescuing the, the city of Vienna from the Ottoman siege uh, on September 12th. And that the Pope who declares in honor of that victory the holy name of Mary, uh, which either Benedict or John Paul brought back on the universal calendar, is the man who wrote a, an encyclical on the question of mental reservation. So that's the encyclical that you want to dig up and, and, and treats this question of holding uh, a truth interiorly but then saying something, saying something other than that. So it's a lie, even if you hold uh, you know, inside what you think is the truth and then say something other than the truth. That's a lie. The other problem, of course, is our practical difficulty with this is you're not giving a good witness. It's not what we're called by our Lord to do. We're called to the truth. Thank you, Chris. I'd also encourage uh, whoever wrote that in. There's a couple of talks in our library uh, on the subject of the, the value of truth, the beauty of truth, this idea that um, we are withholding a good from the other if we conceal what is true, even if it might be uncomfortable. There is a legitimate question with respect to this principle of mental re reservation or the difficulties associated with mental reservation with certain tactics that are used by certain people in the pro-life movement. So anyway, I tend to take a very rigorous interpretation of lying, personally. And this might be sort of along the same lines that you're talking about. But um, towards the end of your talk, you made uh, some implications about what might be in the future. And I was wondering if you would continue or be able to comment on what might be asked of us as Catholics, Christians, or our progeny as compared to um, the types of things that you talked about. Sure. So um, that's an excellent question. And it's one that I kind of think about. And I don't know that I, I think about a lot, actually, and I don't, I, that the only way that I can think about it is, um, you know, I'm an amateur student of history, right? I'm not really an historian. I'm a guy who likes to tell stories, okay? And I'm someone who likes to take, or who hopes to take events in history and make them accessible to Catholics. Um, so, uh, so the only way that I can think about your question is, you know, from a historical perspective. Um, and so I think of with, you know, within, within a century in Mexico, and I'm sure I've given, I think I'm given this talk for ICC, but the church was, was, was violently persecuted in Mexico. Uh, and so I have that talk on the Cristeros. I don't know if it's on the site or not, but you can, you can get a recorded lecture of it from Catholic.com, uh, from our shop site. I know many of you have probably seen the movie, which in the, you know, the movie with Andy Garcia, which in the main was relatively accurate. I mean, they conflated some things for the sake of telling a story. My chief difficulty with the movie, and I make this point in my remarks that I just gave, was 
the Christians in Mexico were not dying for religious liberty. They were dying for Christ the King, right? So remember that that encyclical establishing the Feast of Christ the King was just a couple of years before the Cristero War, right? So um, Pius XI. So that's one example to look at what happened in Mexico. Could such a thing take place in... Uh, in the United States, I mean, I think that there, there, there are real cultural differences between, uh, you know, there's, I don't know that there's the anti-Catholic Masonic influence in the United States uh, or that it has revealed itself as uh, yet. Uh, that did reveal itself in Mexico, but it, but to think that we live in a peace, to, to, it, it, it would be naive to imagine that we live in a peaceful age and we, we're, we've gotten over all that stuff. You know, since uh, we, we live in, the, in, in in a deeply violent age, I mean, we the number of babies that we kill in the womb is uh, annually is a manifestation of the very violent age in which we live. Right now, the haters of Christianity are working their uh, 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 objectives, um, you know, through through the culture, um, and, and 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 with the aid of of politicians. But what is it taking? It's taking the shape right now of um, bakers whose lives are ruined because they don't want to, you know, bake a bake a cake, or, uh, or uh, wedding photographers. Or imagine you ran a bed and breakfast or something, and you didn't want to rent your room to, uh, you know, a, 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 a gay married couple, right? Um, so I think that I think I think we should expect to see more of this. Uh, I think we've gotten something of a relief under the current administration with respect to religious liberty, but religious liberty is good as far as it goes, right? It's not, it it, it it's it, it it's not a, it's not an end in itself. Okay, religious liberty is, is a means to Jesus Christ. Okay, it's not a means to you being a Zoroastrian and me being, you know, where I bite the heads off of chickens. Okay, so um, it, it's a means in the eyes of the church to getting to Jesus Christ. So we're, we're, having, we're having some relief, I think, from this under the current administration. Maybe there'll be another term. But the long game, I, I mean, just look, folks. No one is getting married anymore. We're, we're almost at half illegitimacy. You have to have marriage. You, you, you can't have a civilization without marriage. There's always opportunity for miracle. But, the, but just from the, from the historical perspective and reading the current political tea leaves, I expect it to, I, I expect it to be confiscation of property, loss of business, uh, imprisonment, maybe within our lifetimes. There's another question coming in here from Maria. She writes, in our modern era, is the reason for the martyrdom of Christians similar or different to the early church? And what are the similarities or differences? Well, in Africa, we see a lot of martyrdoms of Christians because of the growth of Islam, right? It's not politically correct to say that, but it's a fact. So it's it's hatred of Christianity. It's hatred, it's hatred of the incarnation. So I would say, in some ways, it's kind of different from the martyrdoms that took place in the first three centuries. I don't think there was a fullness of understanding on the part of the Romans of what it was they were trying to 
to squish, and also the Jews, of course. That is, the Jews wanting to stop Christianity. The Jews, the scandalon, the stumbling block to the Jews is what? It's the incarnation. They, they can't get their imagination around this singular event, God becoming man. And then the suffering God on the crucifix, on the cross. They, they cannot get that. Um, so, uh, and it, it, so it doesn't fit their messianic narrative. Right, which is political. The, 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 the persecution of Christians that's going on today, for example, in Africa, is at the hands of Islam, and that is a hatred of, hatred of Christianity. It's a hatred of the Incarnation. It's a hatred of the, of, of the, of the Eucharist. So, I mean, I guess that there are some kinds of similarities, and, the, and some of these sufferings are, are, are very similar, but I think, I, think, I think it's a great question. I think there, there are some differences in the motives. Thanks, Chris. The graces, though, you know, are in abundance. We'll end with this question. All right, thanks. This is actually harkening back to the anonymous question earlier. You know, I was thinking back uh, to a couple of examples. Obviously, Eleazar in the Old Testament from Second Maccabees, uh, not refusing to give pretense that he ate pork. And I think, and you might actually know this better, so if you can correct my hazy memory on it, I believe it was St. Cyprian who actually wrote specifically on the topic of Christians pretending to honor the Roman gods while holding Christ in their heart and the problems in the early church with that. But related to that, um, you also mentioned mental reservation. I hear a lot of stories of the saints. Um, I believe it was, if, I, if memory serves me correctly, like Saint, I think it was Jose Maria Escrivá, or um, someone who uh, would tell persecutors uh, who were searching for him, even though he was in disguise, you know, oh, he just passed by here a few minutes ago. You, you know, if you hurry, you'll catch him, you know or similar things like that we hear uh, of in the stories of the saints. And I'm sort of wondering if you have considered what might be you know, the distinction between um, what St. Cyprian talks about with those early Christians trying to make that pretense versus that other kind of mental reservation that we hear in some of the more uh, modern stories of the saints. Whether you think there is a distinction, I guess, first of all. Yeah, I think so we, sure, 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 sure. And I, and, and I think we can draw, a, draw some distinctions there. A Jesuit would put it this way, um, you know, uh, actually here I'm complimenting the Jesuits. Uh, uh, they would say that, you know, th th there, there's a certain right to the truth. So in the case that you're describing from uh, Blessed Jose Maria, or Saint Jose Maria, you know, um, the, the, uh, is that, does that person have a, a right to the truth and can some dissembling uh, be um, in order. I think of the life of Miguel Pro, for example, who disguised himself so that he could continue to uh, minister as a, as as a priest. Right. So, uh, I, I I don't think this is dishonesty. Um, I don't know if it's Saint Cyprian, but thank you. I hope you're right, and I'm going to look that up. Uh, and then, of course, the example that I would leave you with, of course, is those of you who have read. The Robert Bull play, uh, A Man for All Seasons, and that, by the way, this is a problematic play. Bolt, Bolt, Bolt is a, Bolt's, Bolt's not a, a Catholic. It, the play, as he presents more, is kind of a, a celebration of freedom of conscience. It's a misrepresentation of Robert Moore, uh, of Thomas More. But the best parts of that play are drawn from Moore's own writing and Moore's own correspondence. So that. 
scene where he's asked by his daughter, Meg goes to see him in prison. So reread that scene there, and you know, and he describes a man holds his soul in his hands, right? He can't say one thing when in his heart he knows, you know, that the other is true. And Moore, I think, is a great, great, great example of this. But disguising yourself so that you can continue to be a priest, as Miguel Pro did. There are, in, even at Catholic Answers, there are some differences of opinion about this. My friend Jimmy Aiken, whose work all of you know, I'm sure, you know, he, so he would say to me, well, Chris, you were in the Marine Corps, and, and, and it's a legitimate tactic to give the enemy the impression that you're going to attack the island here with a feint, but really you're going to attack it here. So he said, is that lying? Right? So this is something for theologians. I'm an amateur storyteller, right? <laughs> so, but great question. Get a theologian in here, Andy, to, to, to solve this one. <laughs> thank you so much, Chris. Thank Appreciate you. It. Thank you all. All right. Hey, thank you very much. <laughs> Support the Institute's monthly pledges. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.